I'll read this excerpt as well, which I thought described it excellently. You said, quote, in practice, like 2008, this has sidelined the non-central bank, central bank, leaving it effectively as the janitor who comes in after the mess and attempts to begin cleaning it up. The mess still happens. Policies put in place have almost nothing to do with interrupting rampaging inelasticity, but the Fed and its compatriots around the world get to parade around somewhat plausibly, in theory, claiming it would have been worse had the quote-unquote market of last resort tactics not been employed, i.e. jobs saved. So this is, I mean, there's the old, I don't know who originated this joke, but calling the central banks the arsonists that proclaim themselves the heroes for putting out the fire type of thing. I mean, that's um, kind of the same thing, right? And it, it it goes back again that that December two thousand eight FOMC meeting where they got together. That's it introduced the world to zero interest rate policies in the U.S. and QE and all that stuff. That's really what it was. It was like, okay, we've been defeated by this financial crisis that we said was impossible. Remember, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, Ben Bernanke stood in front of uh, Milton Friedman in two thousand two and said. Yes, you're right. We caused the Great Depression and we'll never let it happen again. Mm-hmm. And here they are in December 2008 saying, oh, it happened again. What do we do now? Well, what we do is, number one, we claim that, oh, we were effective because it would have been worse if we had done nothing. Right. And that's that's not a central bank. That's not what people were expecting. That certainly wasn't how what the system was expecting out of the Federal Reserve yes. or anybody else. It wasn't like, wait a minute. You guys had promised us this would never happen again. Now you're saying, well, it would have been worse if we hadn't done anything. That's 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 a completely different paradigm. Right. And that, okay, number one. And number two, which is probably worse, what we're really talking about here is, again, mis, misidentifying what went wrong in 2008. It wasn't a one-off thing. So what we're saying is the Fed is essentially trying to prop up a system that doesn't work. And that's a very different mm. set of circumstances than saying, well, we just need to bridge, you know, we need to kick the can down the road a little bit, make it so it doesn't get too bad and too out of line, and then everything will go back to normal. When you continuously try to prop up a bad system, you have to continuously prop up the bad system because mm. the system is bad. And if people believe that you're successful as this market of last resort bullshit, then guess what? Nobody thinks, well, the system must be bad. They must the, the central bank stuff must be working. It must be great. We don't really identify the problem, which is the system itself is broken and bad. And it's not that we need to make it keep it from getting worse. We need to realize that it's already bad, or else we wouldn't have to be doing this stuff over and over again. With the you know, central banks should never have, have to right. become something else to begin with. That, I'm reminded of the, I don't know if it was Einstein or who said it, but the definition of insanity is repeating the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And I just, you know, I, they're trying sort of different things, but it all seems kind of like the same policy tools more or less. And it just, it just keeps getting worse. So it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, then we reached a kind of tipping point in this 2008 great financial crisis where the central banks effectively surrendered to the euro dollar system, right? They're no longer saying we're the central monolithic lender of last resort. We're just going to be some kind of market participant in a way, trying to corral this thing in a politically uh, desirous directions. That leads us into the period we've been in ever since, which I think you said your co-author referred to as the silent depression. 
the collateral shortage being a primary characteristic of this period. Um, so maybe you could tell me a little bit about that. And then that, I think, segues us into the only chart you'll ever need <laughs> that I saw in your your recent publication. Yeah, I think, again, there's this dissonance, right? Because most lay people don't follow these things very closely. And so mm-hmm. you know, maybe what they know of the economy is they follow the unemployment rate. They might hear something about that on TV or across the internet, or they follow GDP. And you look at the GDP numbers and you know, it's a quarterly rate, it's GDP is at record high. And so that sounds like, hey, whatever the Fed is or whatever has been going on with these QEs, they must be working, right? Because output's at record high, mm-hmm. unemployment rate's really low. And so, you know, it doesn't really seem like it to me, but maybe the economy really was uh, fixed and, you know, 2008 was so long ago, we don't really need to care much about it. But when you actually, you know, realize we first of all we live in a in a nonlinear world, which means even if something is going up, if it's not going up at the same rate as it was before, that's a form of contraction, and that can be mm-hmm. very big trouble. And so when you put GDP on, on plotted on a graph, you can see the rate of change. And when the rate of change changed, which was this 2008 crisis, and all of all of a sudden you realize, oh, okay. So what happened was. There was a pre-crisis era when global growth and GDP output went up at a certain rate, not just in the U.S., but Europe and around the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And then after 2008, we had this big contraction and then no recovery. In fact, it's gotten so bad that we get further and further behind where we should have been had this event not been a complete systemic rupture in 2008. And that's where you start to realize, wait a minute, something very significant changed way back then. And the net effect of that is not just all this weird stuff that happens in financial markets and central banking and market of last resort, but in the real economy, the global system has lost a tremendous amount of ability to grow like it used to. And the consequences of that are absolutely unthinkably enormous because mm. you can't really you know, for in the U.S., GDP is about seven trillion behind where it should have been at this point because you know compounding is that big, and over a long period of time, lost rate of change or lost rate of growth gets to be immensely large. And you think about what would the U.S. look like if that seven trillion hadn't been lost, or we hadn't, you know, if we actually had continued to grow at the same rate as before. We don't have a hell of a lot less problems in the world, mm-hmm. especially since it's not just the U.S., it's Europe and everybody else that's lost all this tremendous growth opportunity. The world looks like a very different, less dangerous place than it does uh, where we, we have this very different growth system post-crisis versus pre-crisis. And that's really what we used to call a depression. Mm-hmm. A depression was literally not a recession. It was where you know a recession is a temporary deviation from an unbroken trend, which meant that you know, some things happen. The economy falls and then it goes right back to where it was in a very short period of time. Whereas the depression was, we reached this really big problem. It doesn't get dealt with. And then the other side of it, we go in through many years of very different types of economic circumstances. And that's really, when you look at GDP and you look at the participation problem in the, in the, in the uh, labor market, you realize that we had this pre-crisis rate of change. And then the post-crisis rate of change is substantially less all over the world. Mm-hmm. And so we're thinking, okay, it changed in 2008. What happened in 2008 that would cause something like this to happen? And when you look at 2008 as it wasn't about subprime mortgages, it was a global dollar shortage. And more than that, it wasn't a one-off temporary global dollar shortage. 
it was a breakdown in that system and that system never got fixed because central banks are incapable of interacting in the monetary system as it is, then it starts, you start to put all these pieces together. Now you have a silent depression, you have a monetary cause to it, which historically speaking, those two things always go together. Mm-hmm. Monetary, monetary breakdown, you have a depression, you have a, you know, all these systemic changes, and then you have all these financial pieces, which just reinforce that, that, that diagnosis, which most people have no clue that's mm-hmm. the condition or that's, that's really been the way it has been for a very long time because there's no way to reconcile all of these things with you know, just the bland numbers you see or the absolute mm-hmm. numbers you see on TV. Yeah, well, excellent points. Um, I will try to verbalize this chart just for our audio listeners a bit. So you have this period starting, this chart spans from 1988 to basically 2020. Real GDP and baseline growth track more or less perfectly all the way up to all the great financial crisis of 2008. Then there's a substantial divergence uh, in that probably two-year window. And then it is just continued to diverge ever since. I guess this would be kind of the, the silent uh, depression you talked about. And there's the shortfalls increase, right? It's where there's a delta of 2.3 trillion, then 3.4, then 5.5 most recently. When I say most recently, this looks like the beginning of 2020. So we're late 2021 yeah. right now. There's been some time. And there's a commensurate explosion in bank reserves, and I love how on this chart you say the only thing you need to know about bank reserves is if they go up, it's bad. And they appear to have exploded to almost 15, 16 trillion in 2015. They started to come back down, but then they looks like they've exploded again in the crisis of 2020. So maybe you could just give us a little more color. Yeah. About the other side on. of the scale. It's actually the, the reserves got up to around five trillion, four and a half, five trillion around 2014. Oh, yeah. Which was the, you know, that was the money printing. We got trillions of excess dollars. This and is what Fed I was saying. Only? Yeah, just just the Fed, and just it doesn't matter because the bank reserves or the ECB or the Bank of Japan. It's it's all the same thing. It doesn't really gotcha. matter. What I tell people is, look, I understand why you think that's inflationary, because you see that happen. You see that the bank, the Federal Reserve balance sheet is exploding. You see the level of bank reserves is exploding, and people call this base money. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it should be base money, right? It means bankers. It's a federal reserve. What else would it be? Mm-hmm. And the answer is it's not base money. It's not effective money because we just spent all this time talking about mm-hmm. this. The monetary system itself is something very different that developed outside the federal reserve. And it had no use for bank reserves because there weren't any. So it created its own forms of liquidity. It created its own forms of money, which the federal reserve realized many, many half a century ago that it could not keep up with. And so people see the Federal Reserve's balance sheet explode and think mm-hmm. that that's money printing. And that's, a, you know, the Fed's being reckless. They're going to kill the dollar, all that trillions of extra money printing. And then the financial media reinforces that message over and over again. Quantitative easing is pouring trillions of dollars into the real economy. Mm-hmm. But yet that statement is false in every single sense of it. It's what you can't see that matters. It's the money that's hidden in these offshore euro dollar shadows that matters. And so if you see the Fed's balance sheet go up, what that tells you is something must be wrong in the hidden monetary system. Mm -hmm. So think that there's money contraction in the actual monetary system that is causing the Fed to respond to it. So -hmm. when you see the Fed's balance sheet goes up, that's a response to a monetary deficit that's going on in the shadows that you can't see. Mm -hmm. 
And it's the Fed doesn't matter. The Fed, the, this bank reserves don't mean a damn thing. So it's not like you see the Fed's balance sheet going up and that's inflationary. You see the Fed's balance sheet going up and you think there's deflationary money going on in the stuff we can't directly see and right. observe. It's what you can't see that matters. The, yeah. I love the I love the way you put that because that gets back to uh, well, it's mentioned in Henry Hazlitt's book, Economics in One Lesson, where he talks about the seen versus the unseen. I think he may have got that from Bastiat. Um, but to your point, so we see federal, the Fed's bank reserves exploding. But the uh, what we don't see, correct me if I'm wrong here, is this unsatisfied demand for dollars created by the euro dollar system, effectively. And yeah, so, what, you, what you also don't see is the the anticipated positive effects of that money printing, right? Mm. If the Fed was actually printing money, then we would expect to see a recession, not a silent depression. Mm-hmm. We would expect to see inflation. We'd expect to see the dollar going down. And none of those things ever happen. Yeah. So again, it's it's what you don't see that yeah. actually tells you what's going on, which is the shadow money system. There's something wrong over here. Even though we can't see it, we know that it's wrong by all of these things, all of these symptoms that produce everything is consistent with these stuff, these things going wrong. And by the way, that includes low interest rates. Low interest rates are a sign of tight money, not not loose money. That's another that's another uh, something we've been taught the wrong thing from day one. People associate low interest rates with stimulus. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like it should be right. I mean, if you're reducing the cost of borrowing. Why wouldn't that be stimulus? And it's mm-hmm. throughout history, you have to think about it in terms of what interest rates you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Usually what we're talking about is the interest rates on the most liquid and safe assets. Right. And so the other side of a, uh, the interest rate on a liquid safe asset is its price. And so if the price of liquid and safe assets is high and getting higher, what does that tell you about perceptions of liquidity and safety? Right. They obviously can't be very liquid or very safe, or the price of those instruments would go down. What Milton Friedman said is, as this interest rate fallacy is that historically speaking, that's what you will see. Interest rates, especially benchmark rates, will be lower during periods of tight money, like the United, like the United States in the 1930s, the Great Depression. Rates were low, not high. Yeah. Conversely, in the 1970s, during the Great Inflation, rates went up. And they, they got up into double digits. They skyrocketed because during nominal inflation period where money is excessive, the last thing you want to own is something that's ultra safe and ultra liquid because yeah. liquidity is everywhere. Right. And you don't need it. So, so is, the fact is that bad? interest rates have gone lower over since 2008, again, we have that break, yeah. is a signal that the stuff you can see on the Fed's balance sheet is not money. It's not effective money because safety and liquidity are what's in high demand by the global marketplace rather than mm-hmm. you know the unliquided unsafe like you know credit creation loan lending that kind of thing mm. so is this are we back to the risk adjusted price of interest rates versus the nominal price again that in what some we see ways, yeah yeah what we see is not what is the risk adjusted opportunities in the real economy must be significantly higher than what most people think. Otherwise, banks would not want to own the safe and liquid instruments. Right. It doesn't really matter about the nominal price. It's the risk adjusted price, which you know they're saying we only want to own safety and liquidity because obviously there isn't much safety and liquidity in the actual system, regardless of what the Federal Federal Reserve does with its bank its bank reserves. You know, the level of bank reserves is immaterial to safety and liquidity. Yeah. Is there a reliable proxy 
to convert that nominal interest rate to a risk-adjusted interest rate? Would it be something as simple as, I guess, choosing an inflation rate, which isn't necessarily easy or arbitrary? It is arbitrary, but it's not um, necessarily easy to just you can't use CPI, let's put it that way, for most investors. <laughs> yeah. it, would it be just a matter of establishing an inflation rate and deducting that from the nominal interest rate to get a real yield? Is that how you'd back into a natural risk-adjusted could, interest I mean, rate? The TIPS market gives you a real yield anyway, which I, I mean, that's okay. based on the CPI and the government pays CPI protection, CPI-based yeah. protection. But you know those real yields are relatively clean and relatively easy for the market to determine which you look at real yields today, they're obscene. They're exact, They're ridiculously low. Yeah. The problem is we're taught to believe low real yields are something like stimulus. That's supposed to be inflect, you know, inflation expectations that are supposed to be positive toward this expectations uh, central banking regime. Mm-hmm. When in fact, the market is telling you, no, this is bad. This is not good. Right. We don't need lower rates. We need actual effective money which we're not getting, which is why nominal rates are so low to begin with. Again, safety and liquidity are in high demand. So interesting. So, so real yields are essentially the economic consequences of a monetarily tight regime. And again, it's historically validated. You see this time and again. Tight money, lack of elasticity go with long-term depression. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it really does seem to be like this Sisyphean type task where they're pumping in additional liquidity in an attempt to assuage concerns or reduce uncertainty, but they're actually creating more uncertainty over time. But yeah, because they're not actually pumping in liquidity. They're making people think they're pumping in liquidity when they're actually not. (laughs) That's what I always say. You can't fix a real money problem with a fairy tale. Mm. You can't say, I'm creating bank reserves. You're supposed to believe that's effective money, but it's not really effective money. Right. And so the, the actual system that is starved of effective money doesn't it doesn't really do much good to, to think that I'm you know creating this fairy tale I'm pumping liquidity because they want actual liquidity. Right. And actual liquidity only comes from the dealers, the dealer banks involved in the system, which they prove time and time again this negative, you know, this concept of negative elasticity and backwards elasticity. They're risk averse, not risk taking. They're constraining and constricting balance sheets rather than expanding balance sheets. They're not creating the money that the global economy needs to grow because it's a bad system that went wrong a long time ago and just hasn't been fixed. And it hasn't been fixed because nobody knows it needs to be fixed. Right. Wow. Okay. So the only chart you'll need here, this divergence of real GDP from baseline growth. GDP is effectively a falsified metric at that point. Right, it's not reflecting economic reality. CPI clearly is a falsified metric. Um, the interest rate sounds like it's pretty much a nominal metric. You'd have to adjust to get uh, get it into real terms. I'm, I have said fiat currency is a living lie, and I can't help but see all these false metrics popping out of this system, which are feeding into further bad decision making. Which okay. then iterate itself, you know, into further diverging the metrics from reality. How does this thing not just self-annihilate at some point? And am am I right thinking about this as becoming increasingly misleading over time? Yeah, well, that's absolutely been the case. You know, we fooled ourselves, and it really, that's kind of what the central banks and politicians, by you know, in more general terms, have been sort of 
they've been riding the coattails of this lack of this information asymmetry because they can say, well, our policies seem to be successful. Look at the unemployment rate. GDP is at record levels and nobody knows otherwise. You know, interest rates are stimulus. So low rates don't tell you that we're we don't know what we're doing. Right. Actually, we tell everybody that low interest rates means we're doing our job. Right. Right. So it, it is that it's that people can't get a sense of what's wrong. And you're right. It's 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 really. Why hasn't this thing just broken down completely? Yeah. I think that's, you know, one of the ways you kind of sort of marvel at the fact that here we are 14, 14 years and one month later after the system broke, that it still keeps kind of chugging along. It's not broken. I mean, it's broken, but it's it's not like it just collapsed. Yeah. It still continues to operate in a minimal state. Like, you know, it's like you're flying along in an airline and you put the engines back on idle. Yeah. You can still kind of fly, but it's kind of really shaky and it, it doesn't, yeah. but you'll stay in the air. And that's yeah. kind of where we're at. It keeps, as I say, the euro dollar system is broken, but at least it keeps the lights on. Right. And that's, so that's another falsified metric you just hit on is unemployment. Cause there's yes. people dropping out of the workforce, which is not taken into account. Which is also a very definitive sign of, of continuous deflation, monetary deflation. I mean, John mm. Maynard Keynes said that back in the early 1920s where, you know, e, uh, inflation versus deflation, deflation is by far the worst evil because it directly impacts the labor market. That's where the, the worst symptoms come out of deflation is in labor utilization. And th- what have we seen over the last you know, 14 years? We've seen this participation problem develop, not just mm-hmm. in the US, but across the world, which is consistent with an impaired labor market, which most people don't know about because if you don't count all of these people, these millions of Americans that are on the sidelines, they don't go into the unemployment rate, you think a low unemployment rate therefore gives you a, a, a sense of an economy that's working. Right. When it's anything but, it's exactly the opposite. Right. And it, it, isn't that a natural extension of wages diverging from productivity back when we went off the gold standard? I mean, people clearly are going to fall out of the workforce over time if wages are, you know, real wages are flat and productivity keeps going up. So more economic value creations being captured by the top or asset owners. I mean, isn't that a natural, the natural extension of that would be people falling out of the workforce as we've seen up until today, right? Yeah, but I don't think it would have been as severe as it has been because of the deflationary consequences of the 2008 crisis. I mean, there were mm-hmm. any number of structural problems to begin with. I mean, you know, as Ross Perot pointed out in the 90s, the giant sucking sound that actually happened. We had the giant sucking sound. And one of the reasons we did was because the euro dollar system financed all of that economic you know, expansion overseas that, a lot, that opened up all of these other labor markets that were priced you know, very differently than U.S. labor had been. Mm-hmm. So you had all of these structural issues that the euro dollar system essentially opened the door to that kind of it all seemed to work, you know, yes, we had the Rust Belt develop in the U.S., but that seemed to be limited. And by and large, the economy continued to grow, even though Russ Perot was proven right, in the, especially in the 21st century when manufacturing jobs just disappeared and never came back. But it, it seemed to work while it seemed to work. And then mm. once it broke down and you no longer had the monetary resources behind it, now that structural problem where we have these labor imbalances it's like this impossible Sisyphean uh, you know, uh, impediment that we can't deal with hmm. because we don't have any kind of outlet for growth or money sufficiency anywhere. We can't, we can't solve all these problems because for many years, 
the euro dollar had allowed us to say that this isn't a problem. It doesn't appear to be a problem. Therefore, we're not going to deal with it while it's small. And then it right. became huge. And now how do we deal with all of these things all at once? And going back to what you said before, it is amazing that this thing, that the system just hasn't collapsed. Yeah. And in some ways you do, you really have to think, well, this is, I mean, maybe there's something to it here because it at least keeps the lights on all these years later. And it keeps the, it keeps, and it's the worst case scenario because it keeps the, you know, sort of the con going forward. Yeah. Right. Because we think everything's fine, but we know things are not fine and we can't really tell, we can't put our finger on what it is that's really wrong here. Right. But you think, we think we're led to believe everything's great. Everything's really move. Everything's good. Yeah. Well, I think that illusion's definitely being called into question more and more these days. Is part of it uh, just the contribution that technology has been making to productivity? That all of this monetary intervention's kind of been able to um, feast on in a way that's that's helped us keep the illusion going longer than we would have thought had productivity been flat. Now, I, you know, I take a sort of a more optimistic view on the productivity problem, or at least the, how it's normally said, or at least normally described in that, look, we've been through these revolutions before. We don't need to fear the robots. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in early 19th century, America was an agrarian economy where 90% of the people worked on farms. Um, by the end of the 19th century, only about 10% of the workforce worked on farms. Right. Because... Capitalism, when allowed to succeed, will take that, you know, mechanization and industrialization freed up all those workers, created defl productive deflationary prices and things like food and, and basic necessities mm. that created a surplus of labor that could then be used for other things. And that's really the beauty of capitalism is that if the price of labor goes down, then some really good ideas can therefore be put forward and be put to use because labor becomes cheap enough for those things to become realistic. And so we transition from an agrarian economy to an industrial economy. And in some ways, we're kind of seeing the same thing here, where we go from an industrial economy to sort of an information-based economy, mm -hmm. which in theory, and I believe this is the case, should be able to absorb all of those rust belt workers who are thrown out of work. They should be working in some other industry, some other capacity, usually at a more high paying rate, a more society, a socially beneficial type of, of activity, except they're not. And the reason they're not is because the, the monetary system broke down in 2008. And we no longer have the economic growth, the liquidity, the sufficient monetary capacity to finance that transition, or at least the, the next stage of that transition into the quote unquote information economy. So that's the mm -hmm. part that's missing. And so we end up fearing the, the robots because we see the robots taking everybody's job without realizing that that would have happened anyway, except the, the, the job that the robot took, the person who used to perform that would now be doing a better job if right. there was the economic growth to support it. Right. So we're missing the economic growth. Not the, you know It's not the robot's fault or it's not the company investing in the robot. It's the lack of economic growth along the way, like there had been in the you know, late 19th century, early 20th century. Now, that's right. a messy process to begin with. It's not so easy and neat as in making it sound. But by and large, that's what you would expect to happen. As the labor force gets freed up to do other tasks, well, there are usually other tasks that yes. are willing to pay for the labor. And that has not been the case over the last 14 years. So that I think perhaps I misstated my question a bit. So I agree with you on everything you just said. What I'm getting at is we have increased 
the amount of results we can create with the same or less efforts tremendously by virtue of the information age. I mean, I don't even think I need to go into all the examples, but you know, Uber, Airbnb, like all these things that used to cost substantially more in terms of a supply chain have been, the cost structures have been radically decreased through digital technology, which should, you know, decrease deflate prices and increase aggregate wealth. So my, my question is, all of these monetary interventions, they need to affect like, because if you just printed a bunch of money and gave it to someone, it would be meaningless unless there were a productive economy behind it, right? If those, unless those new monetary units were a call option on something productive, it wouldn't matter. So I guess my question is, as productivity and the economic base has expanded as a result of technological innovation, has this given additional cover or runway to government monetary invention to where we keep asking ourselves, why hasn't this thing collapsed yet? I'm wondering if that is a contributing factor to its uh, resiliency to date. Well, you're, I think you're right, is that, and that's one of the things that's missing from the actual monetary system, which is the zero dollar system, dealer center system, because that is what the, the financial system and the banking system was supposed to be good. And it actually was good at, it's matching productive uses of money. Mm-hmm. Where I think it went wrong is that it was also allowed to create the money, right? And therefore, yes. it essentially skewed all the incentives to it. You know, essentially, as through any asset bubble in history, it just it just ended up creating uses for money, whether they were useful or right. not, right? Yes, it got it got way ahead of itself. But that's in the post-crisis era. That's kind of what's missing. We're missing both the money supply function as well as the redistribution intermediation function, which is exactly what you said. We need the banks to identify useful and productive uh, uses for the monetary capital, and not. But it's the banking system that's impaired. So not only right. we have an impaired elasticity function, you also have the impaired intermediation function. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't it doesn't matter what you do. You could you know theoretically the the, the governments could create money, but how mm-hmm. are they going to get it to productive uses because the banking system's broken? Right. Right. Hey everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. And so it's exactly what you just said. And I think that's a really good point. And it kind of wraps all of these things together, which is the, you know, the, this intermediation as well as money creation function were improperly combined and then allowed to go freaking insane for many, many years. And that's that's really what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. The breakdown and those two things together in 2007 are one reason why this problem is so intractable. 
Mm. And so the Fed doesn't create any money. And even if it could, what would it do with it? It can't inject it into the right places. And so you end up with, like we saw last year with these helicopter drops, right. it creates a short run burst of activity, but it's not productive activity. It's not yeah. wealth creating activity. It's just activity for the sake of activity. Therefore, it's, you know, it runs its course and then we're really poorer for, we're poorer off for, for having done it. Yeah. And the problem is, again, it, it's this bank centered monetary system and all of the functions that system had absorbed for many, many decades and that there are no alternatives to to do them uh, in some other fashion because you know they're broken. That's really the point. The euro dollar system keeps the lights on because yeah. there's nothing else. There's no alternative right. to it. So even though it doesn't work, it at least works minimally well. Where we can fool ourselves into thinking that, <laughs> well, maybe one of these days things will go right. Maybe one of these QEs will luck will yeah. luck out and we'll just the world will go back to the way it was before. And that's really kind of what these reflationary episodes are every couple of years. Is everybody fooling themselves into thinking, okay, this time things will just happen in the right way and we'll, we'll get out of this mess when that's just not possible? Because as you pointed out, these two very central functions are the what's really wrong with it. Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head there where you talked about the incentive breakdown where banks had this real market function of matching creditors and borrowers, providing custody you know, and other ancillary services. But when they got into the business of money production, right, through fractional reserve banking and fiat currency, that very clearly skews their incentives towards just create as much money and demand for money as you can, obviously. Yeah, you create the demand. It's almost like Say's law for money. Yeah. Supply creates the demand. And what, you know, I'm, I'm, there's, and you, I'm sure you've heard this. A lot of people have analogized fiat currency to being like an addiction, you know, like we've, we're creating more of this drug but you need more of the fiat currency to get a diminishing economic impact over time. Uh, I've been speaking with a cognitive scientist recently and he describes addiction as the process of reciprocal narrowing. So, you know, I need one more drink because things aren't going well, but that one more drink makes makes things go a little less well. So I need one more drink to try. And it seems like the same process here where we just keep trying to have another drink from the QE spigot and hope it will all go away. But I don't, there's no, is there any example ever historically of this thing just working out? I mean, short of some kind of cold fusion, miracle economic breakthrough, where there's just a 10,000 X in productivity, it's just, it's going to implode, right? I don't know if it'll implode. I think, you know, that's really, I think that's, that's the the trillion upon trillion dollar question here is Mm. how does this end? And people ask me all the time, well, how does this end? And I hate to tell them, I'm like, look, this scenario is exactly the same one that the Japanese have been working through for 30 freaking years here. Right. So this thing can, the lights can stay on without the economic growth for a very long time. Wow. Now I think there's, there's obviously some differences, the differences between the rest of the world and the Japanese. I don't think we're politically set up to be able to go three decades without growth. And I think something breaks politically before it breaks economic. I mean, the economic break, already occurred. That happened in 2007 and 2008. We already had that problem. It's really about when the buildup of negative consequences of that past break reached some kind of tipping point. And I don't think that means the dollar system crashes again, like it did in 2008. I think it means, you know, what we see in places like Chile or in Europe or in in our own country, in the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see political extremism gravity you know people gravitate toward extremism because they know something's wrong they don't know what it is yeah and so 
somebody who claims to have the answers, they gravitate toward that. And eventually, I think that's where the biggest risk is. Mm. I don't think we get into a dollar situation where the system just completely becomes non-negotiable anymore. Mm. It's just, it's never going to be fixed. And that's kind of the 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 upside answer here is the system as it is doesn't work and it's never going to work. It's Humpty Dumpty. It's mm-hmm. broken. You can't, all the king's horses and all the QEs are never going to get it back together again. So we need to realize that it's broken. It's permanently broken. 2008 wasn't a one-off. It wasn't about subprime crisis, subprime mortgages. It was a global dollar shortage. It's an ongoing dollar shortage. So we kind of need to scrap it and start again. Mm-hmm. We need to do something different. We need to go from an unstable monetary system to a stable monetary system. And the problem with that is, again, as we've been saying, nobody knows we need to do this. Right. And nobody, so if you look step at Step one is history, identifying the problem. <laughs> yeah. We're still on step one. So, sorry to cut you off there. I was just going to say, I think you would agree with this, but a quick study of history will tell you, you're not going to be able to mobilize the collective willpower to change it until the pain just gets so unbearable, right? There has to be, I don't know if it's an implosion, an explosion, social upheaval, what, but it seems like we have to learn the end game of this self-deception of government intervention, financial intervention uh, is pain, right? And until we hit that point of pain, we don't ever seem like we do anything about it. So and that's kind of, you know, I analogize a lot of people want to, you know, when they think about QE as money printing, they analogize it to, you know, cocaine or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's not because first of all, it's not money printing. I think QE is more like anesthesia. Mm, what it okay. does is, is it numbs your senses to the fact that all these things are going wrong. Right. And you think, oh, maybe this stuff works and it doesn't seem like anything catastrophic has taken place since 2008. We haven't seen another bank failure. So maybe this QE stuff works. Maybe it does. I don't know. And so it's more like anesthesia where just everybody gets numbed and normalized to a broken system. Interesting. And that when you that think makes, about it that way, that it starts sense. to make a lot of sense. Yeah. So sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but you're just what you're saying, uh, like an opiate would basically numb you to the pain, the pain being the reconciliation to economic reality, right? So we're kind of papering right. over past bad decisions or losses, or we have zombie companies, you know, all of this. Um, so then what yeah, so I guess the end game of that, and well, first of all. I want to say on that website, WTFHappened1971.com, there's been an explosion in opiate addiction since we went off the gold standard. I wonder if that's any uh, coincidence that we have this mass financial opiate and people are actually taking real opiates more and more and more. Um, We don't have to speculate on that, but I think you're hitting the nail on the head. So what are the... like? I don't know where to go from here. I want to ask you, what are the signs to watch for prior to the next great financial crisis? But I think you've already said that you've named March 2020 as the beginning of GFC number two. Um, Where are we right now? We're in September 2021 for the audience. What happened in March 2020 and what's going on now through the lens of, of everything we've been talking about up until this point? Well, before we get to March 2020, what we've seen is that, you know, as we said, the global financial crisis, the first one in 2008 was essentially the first real global dollar shortage that erupted. That's how Mm -hmm. we explain what actually happened. And the reason why it's been so devastating, the silent depression, 
is simply because it wasn't a one-off event. But that doesn't mean that you know it's been a straight line from there to here. We have these multi-year cycles where things seem to be getting better. You know, there's a little bit more dollars, for lack of a better term, and the euro dollar system becomes less constrictive. It looks like the economy is actually recovering and gaining momentum. And then something yanks the rug out from it. And this is every couple of years, the cycle has repeated. Mm. So when we get to, to some, uh, 2018, for example, you know, everybody thought globally synchronized growth was something substantial. And then things started to go wrong in 2018. And then there was no inflation. Jay Powell ended up cutting rates rather than raising rates in 2019. And that was simply the fourth euro dollar or global dollar shortage that had developed in the series. So we go through this reflation dollar shortage cycle back and forth, back and forth every couple of years which means that this is why we know we don't have the economic growth that we're supposed to, because we can never really get into a recovery situation. The dollar shortage never really goes away, it just becomes a little bit less bad here and there, and then it goes back to bad again. And it, it's this is a major problem all over the, the entire global economy. And it's creating, as we said, all of these you know continuing and in great increasing problems, sort of like a ratchet effect. Mm-hmm. So every time we go through a global dollar, uh, one of these periodic dollar shortages, Things get a little bit worse on the other side of them, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the economy, the global economy can recover a little bit less than it did before. And then along comes 2020, which I mean, everybody thinks Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve did a terrific, tremendous job. And it, this is awesome. I mean, monetary policy kept it from becoming as bad as 2008. We didn't have any Bear Stearns, we didn't have any Lehman Brothers, nobody failed. So obviously, the Fed did a really good job. When in fact, it was actually another global dollar shortage, global financial crisis, mm. that it was in many ways as bad as it was in, say, uh, October of 2008, because the Fed, as we said before, is more of a janitor, market of last resort, rather than actually a central bank. And what you saw in March 20 to 2020, even before that, late February of 2020, was that this dollar shortage had got had already been bad in 2019 and t- getting into 2020. All of a sudden, you introduced this COVID and, and the possibility of, you know, um, governments around the world just overreacting to that and shutting things down. That injected a huge amount of uncertainty, a huge amount of distrust in the system. Collateral shortages everywhere. Everybody was herded into the best quality collateral. You had all of the same telltale signs as we saw in 2008. Fed unable to stop the flow of of, of global dollar shortages because it's not really a central bank, it's more of a janitor. And there was, you know, it was the same thing outside the US as well as inside the US, massive problems everywhere. And it really manifested as one of the bigger dollar shortages since 2008. And um, ever since then, it's been the same kind of economic as well as monetary consequences where that ratchet effect, we go through a dollar shortage, therefore on the other side of it, things don't really go back to where they were before it. Even though we were already in a bad shape to begin with, now somehow we might actually be even worse shape economically and financially speaking than before we had been. And that's not what that's not what the Federal Reserve or the financial media will tell you, though. They'll say that the Fed was very successful in its market of last resort activities, which completely you know, ignores or at least, you know, changes the meaning of what actually happened during March, mm-hmm. which in many ways was, you know, as I said collateral shortage, breakdown in repo. You also had foreigners selling U.S. treasuries, which created, I think many people may are aware of, there was, quote unquote, a breakdown in the treasury market, Mm -hmm. which wasn't any different than it had been in October 2008, but you're supposed to believe that this is something new. And supposedly the Fed came in, market of last resort, and bought a bunch of treasuries 
which fixed the breakdown in the treasury market when that's not what really happened. What happened was the dollar shortage hit offshore and a lot of foreign reserve managers were forced to deal with that global dollar shortage by essentially trying to sell their off the run illiquid treasuries to primary dealers. Mm-hmm. What primary dealers used to do when things functioned relatively well was repo these, these treasuries that get, they, they come into their possession in the repo market, except the repo market had broken down in the same way it had broken down in 2008, mm-hmm. which meant they couldn't repo these treasuries that foreigners were selling to them, which meant they either had to find other sources of collateral better quality collateral on the run treasuries, or they had to dump them Hmm. like many dealers had to do in 2008 as well. And so it wasn't a treasury market breakdown. That was the consequence of this global dollar system breakdown Hmm. that happened in February and March of 2020. And again, if you think back all the way back into February and, and early March, the Fed was doing all sorts of repo operations and things like that. And even I remember the Sunday of uh, March 15th, they announced this massive QE. And the very next day, the stock market tanked Mm -hmm. because this is, you know, it was ineffective, you know, market of last resort, lacking the central bank model in what was essentially a reinstituted massive global dollar squeeze, like, you know, the worst parts of 2008. So the Fed did not perform admirably. They performed admirably if you realize that they're just trying to be the janitor cleaning up after it's wrong. And then they can claim, well, it would have been worse if we hadn't done anything. Mm -hmm. And that's really where we are since March 2020, which, again, we're seeing all the signs, broken labor market stuff, you know, economic growth around the world where, you know, there are real consequences to the fact that we continue to go through these dollar shortages periodically. And March 2020 wasn't unique. It was just the latest one and happened to be a big one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you know, presumably the Fed will always make that claim. They can always say things are better now than they would have been, and no one can ever call that bluff. It's an unfalsifiable counterfactual, right? Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It's If you're thinking about what they actually do, it's a beautiful setup for them because they can just say, well, yeah, it might have been bad, but, you know, it would have been 1929 if we hadn't done anything. And you can't prove them wrong right? because there's no way to. You can't. Well, no, but... But that's really their position. That's the position of monetary policy since December of 2008. Well, it would have been worse if we hadn't done anything. Therefore, we did a really good job. Wow. Incredible. Um, What do you think? So you mentioned that, you know, the media is not covering this narrative at all. What is the relationship between... I don't, I don't mainstream media, I don't think that term holds up anymore because so many people, (laughs) at least... I mean, maybe I'm swimming in a different circle, but nobody believes in mainstream media. Like it's the biggest joke in the world. So my mainstream does not believe in that media at all. They think that it's like propagandized corporate press. What's the relationship between these false narratives the central banks putting out and and the media? Well, I mean, again, you could have a little bit of sympathy for the mainstream financial press because, you know, editorial standards demand some kind of, you know, rigorous thinking which means you know, you're not just going to print anybody's crackpot theories. And so when you come to complex topics like the monetary system, what do you do? If you're just a reporter on the local financial beat, you're going to call up who's supposed to be the expert on monetary topics, which is your local central banker. So your view of the economy as well as the monetary system is given to you by the central bank. And so there's no way in hell 
you can account for or leave, you know, create some kind of accountability for monetary policies and central bankers because you're allowing them to tell you how they did. You're allowing right. them to judge their own performance because you're assuming they're the only ones who know about these complex topics. And right. it's very scientific. And it's, you know, who do we turn to? They're the ones that have these prestigious jobs and they have Ivy League degrees and all the pedigree in the world. So who else would it be? Who else would we turn to for answers on whether or not the monetary system is broken? Well, let's talk to the monetary experts. Which is and clearly so that's an agency does. problem, right? The fact that... <laughs> So, yeah. uh, so it's so complex, they can't see into the black box, so to speak. So they have to talk to the engineers of the black box, which are always going to speak on their own behalf. Exactly. And, and really, you, again, you can understand why that's the case, because um, as we said before, money is supposed to be really simple. That's really the benefit of monetary money mm -hmm. as a commercial tool is it's supposed to be very simple. Everybody knows the terms. Mm -hmm. But as we know, it hasn't been that case in a very long time. And the euro dollar system has taken that to the nth degree. It's an order of magnitude more complicated than it had been you know, 50 years ago. And so it's a very complicated topic. All this stuff is opaque. Who do you turn to for real answers when not only do you, you know, are you told central bankers know all this stuff? More than that, how would you even know if they didn't? Right. We don't even know how to evaluate the evidence. You know, again, interest rates are very simple. When they're low, that means tight money, but nobody knows that. Right. Nobody knows the interest rate failure. So we don't even know how to evaluate whether or not we know what we're talking about or whether or not people else, or other people know what they're talking about. It's, right. it's, it's an intractable problem because there's no way to offload, you know, truth. Yes. Where do we get, where do we introduce truth into all this? Because- there's just no way to do it. And, yeah. and central bankers and economists have every incentive to make sure that nobody knows the truth. Right. Yeah. 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 Back to your way earlier point where the, I forget who was originally talking about the Euro dollar system and the bankers were pushing him not to, right. They didn't want sunlight. Paul cast on this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't say anything. Cause we're making too much money. We don't want anybody to know about it. <laughs> it's funny that, I mean, not funny. It's kind of terrible that we have, it has this intellectual protectionism around it really a lot, largely by virtue of the terms, the jargon, the semantics, the mathematics, all of these things that are impenetrable Everything. by most people. Um, and to your point, Some even of the people inside the system, like it becomes right. so complex, they don't even understand it. And some of it's unnecessary and some of it's just done for the sake of doing it, right? To put mm. up a wall. Um, I'll give you an example. I, I, this was many years ago, 2013, there was repo problems. I was working with a couple members of Congress who wanted to essentially say to Ben Bernanke, this QE stuff that you're doing, QE4, buying treasury, seems to be causing disruptions, monetary problems. Not This isn't money printing, it's causing illiquidity. Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, they were, they asked my opinion how to help them frame the collateral question so that they could say to Ben Bernanke, explain this, because there's mm -hmm. no way to explain it. And this was the summer of 2013. They supposedly, it was supposed to be a test of uh, on, on the record testimony in front of the whole house, but at the last minute it got changed. So it was a private meeting between a certain group of congressmen and Bernanke. I didn't hear about it for a couple of weeks. So finally I called my contact and say, Hey, what happened? And he said, Bernanke just ran circles around him. Mm. He just got into this complex mathematical topic about this, that, and the other thing. And they had no idea what he was saying. 
even though they probably they could they could tell the stuff he was talking about was you know he was sort of filibustering yeah. he was avoiding the question he was hiding behind complexity when this was kind of really a simple issue and that's really how economists and central bankers and the media and wall street and everybody else right. you know they hide behind this unnecessary level of complexion to make it seem like you know you need to go to the priest to yeah, interpret right, exactly nature yes because otherwise you can't believe your lying eyes you need us to tell you what's going on otherwise you might get the idea we're just you know we're just making hand signals here yeah no that's a that's super interesting uh so what i mean if i could just ask your opinion then there's a saying that i think is very true that no man is better than his incentives like what are the incentives that a ben bernanke is actually subject to well, you know, that's the thing. He doesn't have any, um, there's no accountability there. Now, look, I don't believe Ben Bernanke is an evil guy. I don't think he's mm -hmm. a stupid guy. In fact, I know I know people who know him. He, he's actually a very smart guy. He's a little mm -hmm. bit arrogant. The problem is he's using an outdated, incomplete worldview. Mm -hmm. The guy actually wants to fix things. He doesn't, you know, he's not, he's not, you know, a lot of people say the Fed's just crashing the system for their Wall Street overlords and they're doing the bidding of, you know, this evil cabal. That's not the case at all. The people that work at these central banks legitimately want to solve these problems. The problem is they don't know how. Right. In some ways, they don't even know they don't know how and they don't really know what they're doing. And that's really the issue. And the problem with Bernanke, the lack of incentives, is that there's no way to introduce that accountability, right? Because again, I mean, his tenure was marked by the worst financial and economic circumstances since the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. Yet he still can, you know, he's still considered to be a relatively successful, smart guy who gets got the job done and you know, um, jobs saved and all of that stuff. Because there's no way for people to say, well, did he do a good job? How yeah. would we know? We don't right. really know. There's no way to account for. And so Ben Bernanke's thinking. I bet he has a lot of sleepless nights where he wonders, you know, one of these days people are going to figure this out that I screwed up bad. Yeah. I really yeah. think that's that he knows that at some point uh, that reputation is good. But I mean, that's so far down the road. Yeah. It's not a form of accountability. It's not a negative incentive that would influence his behavior. And there's also, you know, a huge amount of institutional inertia mm -hmm. where, you know, economists, they will defend their econometric models that mm -hmm. are completely garbage and worthless to the end, like they're their own children. Yes. Because that's what, you know, you're telling me my life's work is worthless. Right. Yes. I, yes. Nobody wants to hear that. You know, nobody yeah. wants to hear. I mean, I've been working at the Fed for 20 years and you're telling me I'm responsible for all this misery. Yeah. No, there's there's no incentive to forget people to be honest about all of these things because they can plausibly hide behind complexity. They can plausibly hide behind, oh, GDP's at records and it's not so bad. Yeah. Maybe things are going and all these other things. And But the public is left completely ignorant in the dark about everything. Yeah. It has no way to connect all of these dots, which when you, when, you, when you look at things correctly, these dots are really easy to connect. It's really yeah. easy to monetary insufficiency, depression, interest rates, all that stuff. It's not hard to connect, but- there's no incentive to do that. It's it, every incentive is about maintaining the status quo, right? Which is really what the Federal Reserve actually does. Monetary right. policy has no money in it. It's about maintaining the illusion that everything seems to be working fine. 
But when I look at the only chart you'll ever need, the thing <laughs> is going exponentially <laughs> off course. So right. that's a really, I mean, this is a deep and substantial, probably the most substantial problem in the world is that this incentive structure individually and collectively to preserve the status quo of this thing that's going exponentially off course. And this is, we're talking about managing, quote unquote, managing the most important tool for human beings, which is money. Right. And it's being driven off of a cliff effectively, but everyone's defending the drivers, including themselves. Yeah. I, you know, to, to, to bring this back to a more optimistic uh, sort of spin on everything is that over the last few years, as some of these extremes have been reached, as some of these you know things spinning out of control have spun farther and farther out of control, there has been some you know around the edges a little bit of accountability trickling in. Mm. Where, for example, you'll see some some papers published on collateral insufficiency and shortages and things like mm. that. That for the first ten years after the crisis, nobody talked about it. Now, all of a sudden, they're starting to wonder, you know, inside the halls of the Fed and the ECB and all these other places, people are starting to question QE. There was mm -hmm. uh, some one of my, my readers or fans had pointed out to me that uh, there was actually a hearing in Parliament, the House of Lords in England, where they, they had a bunch of economists come on and say, this QE stuff isn't what we were told it was. Mm -hmm. So there's slowly some of that being, you know, creeping into the system. But you're right, Robert, it's sort of like, you know, it's it's a game of chicken here. Mm -hmm. It's not coming fast. This accountability is not coming fast enough. This understanding is not coming fast enough that we can reach a positive outcome where we know the system's broken. We need to fix it. Yeah. Maybe before something really goes wrong, before that actually happens. And that's kind of it's, it's like a game of chicken or like ticking clock where, you know, is, <sighs> is the, the bad parts building up so much that we can't fix it before we know we should. Yeah. Or, are, or maybe can we get there before something really bad goes wrong? Yeah. Wow. Well said. Well,